0: So if you're an 8.30 veteran, you would know that we usually split the sermon time. But Pastor Paul is at a particularly busy week, and uh, as a gift to him, it'll just be me today. So you you won't have to wonder, like, oh, man, Paul. Uh, Anyway, totally unrelated, what's the best thing to happen to you in the last month or so? I thought maybe we could take just a second or two to answer that with people next to you. What's the best moment you've had in the last month or two? Share that with somebody next to you. So for me, it was a a date with Christy. We went to a friend's wedding in Virginia, and we sat with friends we hadn't seen in ages, and we ate good food, and we told stories, and we showed pictures of our kids to each other, and then uh, there was this one kind of bridesmaid at the wedding who made sure everyone danced, and if you sat down, she was coming to find you. And so lots of silly dancing, tired dancing, and it was... It was just a great night. It was one of those things when I look back, and I'm like, that was one of the best moments I've had in a while. And I was reading a book recently, and the author said, you know, it'd be great thing if you just made a best moments list of your whole life. And so I've been kind of working my way through that. And on it are like small things, just little things, like a cold sparkling water on a hot summer day. That's such a good feeling. Uh, this was, the next one's kind of silly. It's more of a middle thing, not small, not middle. But I can remember the first time I tried a pair of shoes on that really fit. And that might sound silly, but I was 32 years old, and I had no idea that shoes could fit like that. Is that like, is this what you all have been feeling the whole life? This is amazing. Uh, and then of course, some, the big things like getting married, graduating um, from college and seminary, my kids being born, lots of big things. But if you were to make a moments list from your whole life, what are the best things? Our passage today in Second Samuel, if you were to make a list of the best moments in the Old Testament, this would be on the list. In fact, at least one commentary I read this week called this passage the ideological summit of the Old Testament. What does that mean? It means it has the greatest idea in all of the Old Testament. There is something that is shared in this passage that was never shared before, and the world has never been the same since. So this is what it says, starting in verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all the enemies around him. This is a short introduction. David is king, and if you don't know anything about David, his life has not been easy up to this point. Short background, just some highlights. He is the great grandson of uh, Boaz and Ruth from last week. He's born in Bethlehem, and he is uh, he is the youngest of eight sons. David uh, grew up during the reign of Israel's first king, King Saul, and Saul was tall and handsome and a great military leader, and he was God's choice until Saul said no thanks. God, I'm going to do this my own way. So when David was just a boy, he was out tending uh, sheep, the prophet Samuel comes to his house under God's direction and anoints David as king, as like a 12 or 13-year-old. And of course, they keep it a secret because you can't let Saul know that, hey, there's this other guy, he's going to be king. Saul would not have handled that well, as as we'll see. Maybe the most famous story of David's life is when he defeats Goliath. Goliath is this Philistine champion who challenges any Israelite to mortal combat in the winner take all kind of battle. And David, in the name of God, defeats him with one stone. David becomes famous and comes into the service of Saul. And for over a decade, Saul sends him out on missions, and every time he's successful. And he gets known in the land so much so that the women would come in the streets and sing songs about him and say, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And that's when things got especially difficult. See, Saul started to feel jealous. And then for the next four years, David had to run for his life. Ultimately, when uh, Saul dies in battle... David is in exile, and he comes back to claim his rightful place as heir to the throne, and yet one of Saul's sons says, no thanks, I'll be king next. And they spend years in civil war. Between those wars and the battles with the Philistines and the Jebusites, David has been king for seven and a half years before he even sits on the throne in Jerusalem. If you are counting it all together, he has spent 22 years either running for his life or fighting for his life. So to say that he is sitting on his throne and resting from his enemies, it is a short sentence, but it has been a long time coming. David's sitting on the throne, and he's not used to this. Uh, Forgive this comparison if it's not helpful, but it reminds me a little bit of quarantine for COVID. I was sitting at home, and I'm not used to just sitting at home. And I started to notice things about my house that I didn't notice before. Did anybody else come up with a big, like, to-do list at their house of, like, sitting things, things that bother you when you're just sitting there day after day after day? One small example is in front of our laundry room, we didn't have a door. There was just a 40-year-old curtain hanging there, and it had never bothered me before. It had bothered my wife. She had definitely noticed, but I had never really noticed before. But after days and weeks and months of sitting at home, uh... I was like, can we do better than that? That's not even our curtain. It was here when we got here. Like, that's not. uh, And my friend Adam helped me build a barn door, and we replaced that old curtain with the real thing. David says to the prophet Nathan, "Here I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent." A house of cedar in that day would not have been a house of wood. It would have been kind of like this building. So this building is metal and stone but it has uh wood hand carved inside this is kind of what it would have been like for david he would have had a stone palace but with wood overlays like this and it would have been beautiful and david again he's not used to sitting around he sits around he has this thought you know i'm i'm in this amazing kind of palace and and god's ark the ark of the covenant is just in a tent and actually in hebrew that word tent is just the word for curtain David is in his house, this beautiful house, and God is outside living behind an old curtain. Nathan here is introduced, um, but not really. All we know that he's a prophet. And a prophet in the Old Testament is someone who has an experience with God, who then is given the job of speaking on God's behalf. And Nathan is a very good friend to David. Over and over again, David will need a word from God, and Nathan helps him. David needs that kind of spiritual friendship, and so do we. One of God's great gifts to us is when we have friends who will help us say, hey, I think this is what God has for you in your life. I don't think it's that. Don't do that. I love you. And Nathan is that for David. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. So David clearly has in mind to make a better house for God, and Nathan says, hey, this seems like a great, beautiful thing to do. It makes sense. Go for it. And then this phrase, the Lord is with you. There's nobody who saw David's life and the way it worked out who didn't know. God is clearly at work in his life. The Lord was with David. Verse 4, But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David. This is what the Lord said, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar?" So that night, God comes to Nathan in a dream. And this, again, is a kindness from God. Nathan gave David normal advice for normal times. And then God says, I have a different word for David. This is not a normal day. Nathan said, whatever you have in mind, do it. That seems like a good thing. Three times in the last few months, people have come to my office and said, I have a dream for a ministry, a Bible study, a small group, a Sunday school class, and God has met me. I have experienced love from God, and I want other people to experience what I've experienced. Is it okay with you if I start a group like that? And my answer to that always is yes. Yes, let's do that. If God has done something in you and you want to include some other people, let's go. Let's do that. When do you want to start? How can I help? How many books can I buy? Like, what do you need? That is, a, that is an easy yes and a very good day for a pastor when people come up to you and say that. And I imagine it was like that for a prophet. But again, this is not ordinary days. God says to Nathan, go tell my servant David. So David may be king and women may be singing him songs in the street, but he is still just a servant of God God asked are you going to build my house he says you are not the first servant I've had that's been hundreds of years I've had lots of servants and you are valuable to me but you are not better than any of the other ones who have come in my name God has always chosen where he lived and where God chose to live was in a tent with his people wherever they have gone Remember, the story of the Bible is God moving with people, trying to be with people, moving closer and closer and closer to us. Verse 8. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointing you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. David has been brought to this moment by God. There's no place in David's life for delusions of self-sufficiency. God has been so clearly at work in his life. Nathan knew it. Again, David knew it. Everyone knew it. David's resting on his throne because God has done this for him. To pause and say for us, self-sufficiency is an illusion. When you look back over the best moments of your life, how many of them were just, you made it all happen. No, the reality is those best moments of your life were all gifts to you from God. We are not here by our own self-sufficiency. Any attempt to build our life apart from the input of God is a fool's errand. We rely on God. But God does not rely on us. God says to David, I don't need anything from you. Anything you could give me, I gave you. So whatever you could give me, I I don't need anything from you. One definition of God, kind of on the philosophical realm of things, is God is the only one who doesn't need anything from anyone else. He is self-sufficient. God doesn't need anything from David. And not only does he not need anything from David, and not only has he given David every moment that was good in his life, God says, I have even more to give you. And this is where the whole story of the Old Testament changes. Now I'll make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth and i'll provide a place for my people israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did in the beginning and have done ever since i've appointed leaders over my people israel i will give you rest from all your enemies god said david i'm gonna make your name great and here we are three thousand years later on the other side of the world still telling his stories and we still name our kids david I think god kept that promise god said i'll provide a safe home for you and for my people israel i'll protect you from wicked people and f- give you rest from all your enemies in a this borders on this idea in hebrew of shalom where all is well or relationships physically um relationally everything is all is well and i just want to say like this is one of those places where you read a text and you look at our world today and you go like oh, I. Does this match? This is one of those times where the Bible passage and what's going on in current events get so close together. There are thousands of people who have died and hundreds of hostages. And just because in Israel today and the surrounding area, there is not peace, all is not well. I just thought we'd take just a a few seconds in our service and just pray for that situation. Will you pray with me? Jesus, there are people in Israel and in Palestine. People you are love, people you love who are dying. Lord, have mercy. Thousands of people are living in fear of violence. Have mercy. Terror and evil are very present. Jesus, bring an end to terror and violence. Bring rest and peace and safety. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Back to Second Samuel. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. God says, I'll establish a house for you. And this is a play on the word house. So the Hebrew word for house is by it. And it can be used to talk about a home. So David is sitting in a house, which is a, it can be used to talk about a palace and a temple. David is sitting in a house. He wants to build God a house. And God says, no, I want to build you a house. The other way to use it is to talk about a family and a dynasty. That word by it is used 15 times in this chapter. He says, David, when your life's over and your offspring rule Israel, I'm going to make them great. I'm going to let one of them build me a house. And your lineage will never end. Your family will go on forever. Parents, grandparents, if you're in the room, imagine this promise from God. Your kids will have kids and I will be with them and their kids will have kids. And your great-great-great-grandkids will have kids, and I will be with them until I come back and make everything new. God promises them shalom, a great big family, and then this, a love that will never be taken away. Verse 14, I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul when I removed from him from before you. God says in this moment, I'm establishing a different kind of relationship with you and your offspring. I will be your father and you will be like children to me. And of course your offspring will do wrong and they will be punished, but my love will never be taken away from them as I took it away from Saul. And this is that ideological climax. This is the new kind of relationship this is a beautiful revelation from God, and the, the, it has changed the last 3,000 years. Up until this time in the Old Testament, every relationship with God has kind of been an if relationship. If you do what God says, you will get the blessing. If you don't, just punishment. If you do what God says, you will be okay. But here, this is something entirely different. He says, even if you don't, nevertheless, I will not take my love away from you. I think in every relationship, there's kind of a point where you can walk away. You go on a first date. It doesn't go well. You don't have to call them back. You don't have to respond to their messages, right? There's a, there's a point where you can go like, oh, no, thank you. But then I hope, and I think you probably have people in your life where you've gone too far with them. Now, if they're the worst person in the world, you'd have to go visit them in jail because they're just your person now and you can't give up on them. You'd like to, but you can't. They're yours. They're yours. There's a point in a relationship where you've just gone so far with them, you can't go back anymore. And God says, that's where we are with you and your family. There's no going back. I will always love you. Even when you're horrible, I will love you. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And of course, this passage is talking about David and Solomon and his kids and his kids' kids and all of Israel. But this points us so directly to Jesus. The very first words of the New Testament are this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. Jesus is the long-awaited king. Jesus' kingdom will be the one that lasts forever. God promised a safe place and a home for absolutely everyone, and we experience that in Jesus. Everyone gets a family that will not end, and all of us are invited into a love that will never be taken away. This is the offer to you and to me, a love that will never be taken away, a home, a family, and love. That was what was promised to David, and in Jesus, what is offered to us. And our question this morning is, do you know that? Do you know that Jesus is offering you a home and a family and real love? That God loves us and knows us is probably the very first thing we learn, the very first thing we teach our kids, that God loves you. And it may be one of the hardest things in the world to actually believe. And that's for a a, a bunch of reasons, right? Maybe you grew up, and for whatever reason, you have internalized a, a message that says, If I'm good, God will love me. If I show up to church and I give and I do what's good, God will love me. If I avoid sin, I will be okay. But the problem is we have not avoided sin and we have hurt people. What if God really knows that? What if God knows you at your worst, at my worst? What about those irredeemable moments of our lives? Jesus has full knowledge of that. And even 3,000 years ago, he said, I know you and I know how this will go, and I am in anyway. God knows you and loves you. When I think about the best moments list of our lives, these are the kinds of things that really make our best moments list, the times where we, the stuff we learned when we were kids became real to us in our hearts and our minds, that God knows us and loves us. It went from information to in there. Maybe it's not your own sins and your own pretending and hiding that keeps you from God, maybe it's because of the pain in your life. Whether it's death or sickness or loneliness, a prayer went unanswered and you said, I think God has already removed his love from me. Jesus, if you are real, will you give me a sign that that shows that you have not taken your love from me? And if that is you this morning, this is your sign. This is the message from Jesus, that for 3,000 years, God has had this on offer. I have a love for you that circumstances cannot get in the way of. Jesus has not taken his love away from you. These are the best moments of our life. This is the best moment of the Old Testament. This is the best moment of David's life. God says, I will give to you and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren until I come back again a home home and a family, and a love that will never be taken away. And I'd like to take a minute and just pray about that with you. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you that you have made this good news available to us. Thank you that you could love us, and you do love us with a love like that, that will never be taken away. That the offer to David was made to absolutely everyone in Jesus, and we celebrate that. Thank you. That's a big reason why most of us are here because that has become real to us in ways that we can't deny. God, would you do that again for the people we love the most? For our kids and our grandkids, would you show them this great love? For the people we love the most, accept your offer of a home and a family and a love that will never be taken away. In Jesus' name, amen.